Well, good morning. morning. Well, open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 1. We're not doing a message in the continued series of Genesis. Um, I talked with Pastor Craig about that, and he said I could do something that I'd like to do on my own. So I'm doing something different. Besides that, I didn't have the time to study that Genesis passage to be ready for it either. So the other part. Let me open a word of prayer as we look into God's word together. Well, it's exciting that we have the opportunity to look into your word. But the word speaks to our hearts and to our minds. It goes down deep to refresh our souls. It enlightens our eyes. It even convicts us of sin. But we each come today with different circumstances, situations that uh, we're working through. And when we come to fellowship with the other saints, there's times we need great comfort to our souls. As do Beth and uh, her family at this time, the Jarvises. Just the comfort you bring to them, but even for us here. There's some going through trials and tests. There's things that are overwhelming them. Health issues, family situations. Your spirit needs to come and just give a word of comfort and encouragement to them. For others, Lord, it's where they are doing well. And they're sort of plodding along and things are going well for them. But they sense where they have that pat on the back from you. Somehow with your word, you're able to encourage them in their walk that they're going in the right direction. They're doing the right thing. And just that word that somehow builds them up to press on. And for others, Lord, it's where they've taken a deviation from the path. They've somehow taken a step away from you. Somehow their eyes are not on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. And in the process... Your word through your spirit is able to bring them back in alignment with Christ. But for all of us, Lord, we want your spirit to work in our hearts, in our minds, illuminating the word of God, that we may know it, but apply it, and that we're transformed by it, become more like your Lord and, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and your dear Son. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Larry Walters was a young man who, when growing up as a kid, he always wanted to be a pilot. He thought the best thing he could ever do was fly a plane. So when he graduated from high school, what he did is he enlisted into the Air Force. Got in the Air Force and started training to be a pilot and discovered his vision was too bad and they would not let him be a pilot. So Larry didn't become a pilot. His dream was done away with. But what he happened to do was he lived in Los Angeles, and as he sat in his backyard, he watched regularly for the planes that would fly overhead. He started thinking one day, it's like, maybe I could still fly if there was just an opportunity. And then he had this idea. Went to the Army surplus store, bought a big tank of helium. He also bought those weather balloons. Not, not those little party balloons, but those big weather balloons. They're four feet wide when you blow them up took everything home and he sat down in his lawn chair, took those balloons and attached them to the lawn chair. Tied the lawn chair to his Jeep just to make sure everything was in place and he sat there and he started filling up all those balloons. I was doing that, he was getting ready to go and he sat down in the chair, made a lunch and a sandwich, had that with him, had a BB gun with him. He thought when he got up there in the air he could take that BB gun and Pop those balloons and slowly drift back down to the ground. That was his dream. I find it interesting as believers in Jesus Christ, especially as young churches, we have a dream of what the church should be. My ministry is composed of only church planting. And I remember as you gathering in places like this, setting up every week, hoping there's a day that it goes away, tearing it down, 
doing all that work, but all of a sudden you found yourself having a dream of what the church will be. And I think most of us sit around, if we really have our dream, we love to read Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 gives us this wonderful picture of the church. The Holy Spirit comes and everything takes place. All these conversions take place, and everything's excited for what happens. All of a sudden, wow, there's 3,000 people that are there in one day. And we all dream. We wouldn't say this publicly. We all dream that our ministry would grow and get bigger and more than what we have today. And we have dreams for what the church should be. Each one of you, you have a dream for what VCE should be. You know what you think about at night? You know what you envision should happen here? And you have a dream for what the church should be. And most of us have those dreams of what the church should be. And oftentimes we go to Acts chapter 2 and say, we want to see the Spirit of God work in that way in the lives of people. But we often forget that there's Acts chapter 1. There's a prologue before you get to that dream. Something happens before you get to Acts chapter 2. Something takes place in Acts chapter 1 that happens before you get to Acts chapter 2. And Luke sort of sets this backdrop that there's a certain kind of people that have to be here if you're going to be in Acts chapter 2 church. I was making sure that's not my music. <laughs> I don't know if you hear it. I hear music. I hear it's a, okay, it's like, gee, did my Panera, Panera, Pandora, go off? And it's like, oh no, we're singing along and I didn't know it. So, I'm sorry. Okay, we're back to Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 2. What we're going to see is Luke's going to tell us there's some things, some things we need to think about. What kind of people do we need to be? Here's what we find out. Starting chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, he says this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he had, was taken up. And after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. As Luke starts off, he identifies one of the important things is that the church and the people are founded upon Jesus Christ. Uh, there's two things about Christ to pay attention to here. In verses 1 to 3, he identifies it's the work of Jesus Christ that's important. It's his death and his resurrection. He identifies he appeared to them for over 40 days. He kept appearing to them to demonstrate he was truly God. But there's a second thing that's important. Not only the work of Christ, not only his life that he lived, not only his death on the cross, not only the resurrection that he had, but there's also the words that he gives as well. Look at verse 4 there, how he starts off. And while staying with them, he ordered them, or commanded them, not to depart from Jerusalem. That tells me the other thing when it comes founded on Jesus Christ is the importance of the word of God. I mean, all of a sudden you've got these people who are following Christ, and he wants them to understand, look, it's the work of Christ that sets the foundation for us. But it's the word of Christ that's going to cultivate our relationship with Christ. Somehow knowing the importance of your walk with Christ is dependent upon the Word of God. Starting to, starting to think about this. If I'm really devoted, if I'm going to be founded on Christ, the Word of God becomes important in my daily life. So 
sort of stopping, stopping and thinking through for yourself. How often do you read the Word? How often do you study the Word? How often does it fill your life and your soul? Scriptures come along and identify it refreshes us, it enlivens us, it encourages us. All the promises are yes, but it's the importance of reading the Word of God. Oh, the Word of God is able to convict us, to correct us, encourage us, to comfort us. All that the Word can do. But that's because we find ourselves founded on Jesus Christ and paying attention to the Word of Christ is what allows us to progress in that relationship with Christ. The Word of God is important. The other thing to pay attention to is when Luke starts off this passage is he focuses consistently upon Jesus Christ. And pay attention to that. When you start thinking about people walking in faith, it's their faith that is in Jesus Christ. Oftentimes what you'll hear today are testimonies of people who share about believing in God. And that's a good thing. But keep in mind when the believers started believing in Christ, the Antiochians, when they started coming up with a name for us as believers, they didn't call us Godians because we believed in God. They called us Christians because we believed in Christ. Oftentimes you'll hear people stand up and say, they became a Christian by believing in God. Though Jesus Christ is God, the gospel is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you should be saved. Keep in mind our testimony is founded on Jesus Christ. Our walk as believers is founded on Jesus Christ. And though there's a triune God, Jesus Christ is the foundation of our salvation, the faith that we have. So we start off and find out, well, the first thing that's important, it's founded on Jesus Christ. But the second thing we find out is that we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Here's what we read in verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 6. So when they come together, they asked him, Lord, will this time be where you restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So he asked, they start asking questions. Their anticipation the kingdom's going to come. The anticipation of the idea that Christ would come and reign on the earth in some way. He doesn't say that's not going to happen. He said it's not going to happen now. The thing you need to understand what's going to take place now. And the important thing is to realize as believers, we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You have to start asking yourself a couple questions. Why does Jesus find it important to remind them that the Holy Spirit's important and their walk on a daily basis. Why do you need to understand that we need to be empowered by the Spirit? Well, a couple things have just happened. One, you had the 12 disciples following Jesus. And all of a sudden, one of them, one of them betrayed Christ. They're aware of the sense that Satan is alive. They're aware of the darkness that is there. They're aware of what Satan can do. And in the process of that, as the followers of Christ, they're sort of saying to themselves, you know what, we need to be empowered by the Spirit. Why? Because some of us, some of us could actually betray Christ. But they also remember there's another one among them. A man by the name of Peter. And Peter didn't betray Christ, but he denied him three times. And all of a sudden you realize as followers of Jesus Christ that we can actually deny Christ. That somehow when we're at work, somebody's talking about the faith, we have the opportunity to speak up, and we choose not to speak up. 
There's a sense where we can deny Christ. Says, Listen, you need to understand you can be empowered by the Spirit. Why? Because there's this risk of our flesh that we can actually deny Christ. But I think there's a third one here, too. All the things have taken place, and Jesus Christ is going to give them that great commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's going to tell them to go reach the world for Christ. And they look around the room and go, one, two, three, nine, ten, eleven. We're pretty small, aren't we? It's some... It's interesting we start looking at ourselves and start thinking how small we are. And we just think if we had more. You know, small church is what we often think about. If we just had more people, there's so much more we can do. If we had more money, there's so much more we can do. If we have more resources, there's so much more we can do. Because we get caught up on the idea of being small. The Old Testament was um, an occasion where all of a sudden you had the whole temple was destroyed. They go into captivity for 70 years. They come back and they rebuild the temple. Rebuild the temple and it's a lot smaller than the previous temple. Two groups of people are standing there. One is weeping. One's rejoicing. The ones that are weeping, they're weeping because it's so small. And they're the ones that had seen the big one. The ones who are rejoicing had never seen a temple. And they're rejoicing in the small temple because they'd never had a temple before. We have this tendency to think that bigger is better. But to understand the power of small things. Why don't you think about it? There were 11 followers of Christ, disciples who had spent that three and a half years with him. And we're all sitting here today because of them. That somehow those 11 men empowered by the Holy Spirit reached the world for Christ. That somehow 11 men could accomplish that. And we somehow forget when we're small, the mighty things God can do. When I was in college, I um, majored in wildlife management is what I started in. And that was not how to party on the weekends. And that was actually a biology degree. And... Um, in doing that degree, I was in systematic botany, and uh, we went out to uh, Minnesota. Uh, I went to the University of North Dakota, and we went out to Minnesota, and we were at Lake uh, Itasca State Park, actually. When you get to Itasca State Park, you come there, and all of a sudden, you come to this little spot, and there's, there's this little sign that says, Headwaters of the Mississippi. And you stand there and go, what? What is this? And you look, and there's this, I won't even call it a stream. But there's this little batch of water going by, and it's about six feet wide. It's about a few inches deep. And here's the sign, Headwaters of the Mississippi. And I remember what we all did. We stood there like this and got to the other side and go, wow, I just walked across the Mississippi. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> I just did it again. You know, and, and we, we kept walking back and forth across this. And this is before cell phones. We did actually have phones. But before cell phones, we had a cell phone, you'd have videoed it, videoed it and, said, and I'd have posted on my Facebook and said, whoa, I walked across the Mississippi. But that didn't work. I got home that night, I called my dad. I said, hey, dad, 
Guess what I did today? What'd you do, Mike? I walked across the Mississippi. Right. Why did he not think that's true? Now, I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. And I don't know about you, when I think of the Mississippi, I do not think of the headwaters of the Mississippi that are just six feet wide, six inches deep. I think of the headwaters of the Mississippi down there in New Orleans, when all of a sudden the Mississippi River is 5,280 feet wide and 200 feet deep. That little stream in Minnesota became that mighty river in New Orleans. God somehow understands that when he empowers his people, small group of people, just 11 men, he can reach the world for Christ. But we somehow think when we're small, we're forgotten. One of the churches I planted was in a small town called Langdon, North Dakota. 2,300 people. In the ministry there, we had a woman in our church named Marilyn. Marilyn was the evangelist of our church. Marilyn would be in charge of Awana, and every kid that came to her Awana group, they came to Christ. Marilyn had a women's Bible study that she did. Every woman came to Christ. She was an evangelist in our church, and everybody she touched came to Christ. And her hero, her hero was Billy Graham. There's no greater evangelist than Billy Graham. And she just loved Billy Graham. So Marilyn, in her life, all of a sudden contracted breast cancer. Living in a small town, you went to Grand Forks, North Dakota, the doctors there, and they did the testing and said, yep, you've got breast cancer. But she wanted a second opinion. And from North Dakota, for a second opinion, you always go to Mayo Clinic. So she goes to Mayo Clinic to get her second opinion. While she's at Mayo Clinic, she's there with her husband. And, and I thought about going to visit her. And I'm not a bad pastor, but 500 miles is a little far away to go to make a hospital visit. So I prayed for her. I thought, you know, God, you've got to provide for her. You've got to minister to Marilyn. You've got to somehow meet her needs. And we're praying for Marilyn. Marilyn's walking down the hall one day with her husband. She looks down the hall and says, Honey, does that look like, that looks like Billy Graham. <laughs> No, no, Marilyn, that's not Billy Graham. Hey, get a little closer. No, 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 I think that really looks like Billy Graham. No, Marilyn, it's not Billy Graham. Gets right up next to him. Sure enough, she looks at him and said, we'd all do this. Are you Billy Graham? <laughs> yes, I am. And Billy Graham stood there, chatted with Marilyn, Listen to what she was going through with her cancer. And Billy Graham prayed for Marilyn from Langdon, North Dakota, this little town of Langdon, in this little church in Langdon. God found Billy Graham for her to pray for her. Now, I'm a good pastor, <laughs> but I'm no Billy Graham. <laughs> you know, folks, somehow we think when we're small, God forgets us. And when we're small, we need to be empowered, empowered, empowered by the Holy Spirit. You need to pause and just reflect. You know, God, am I founded on Jesus Christ and his word? Do I find that cultivated in my life? But, but Lord, if I find that, do I really sense I'm being empowered by your Holy Spirit? Am I really being empowered by your Holy Spirit? Because, Lord, I get discouraged at times because we just seem small. We're a year old. I thought there'd be twice as many people here by now. 
But we're a year old. I thought, and whatever your dream is, it's coming back and saying, are you empowered by the Holy Spirit? But there's a third thing Luke wants us to see here. Notice what else he says after that in verse uh, 8. Not only you, when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, he goes on and says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's one of those few times that you sort of like the old King James translation. Some of you don't know what that is, but there used to be an old translation called King James. And this is a favorite farmer's verse, or the dairyman's verse, actually, because it used to say, to the uttermost parts of the earth, okay? So what you have here is a whole idea of what you're going to be here, but the picture is witnesses. Here's what you want to understand. When Luke is laying down this foundation here, he says you're not just going to be founded on Jesus Christ. You're not just going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is the catch one. You've got to be engaged. You've got to be engaged with a vision to reach the lost. What's the vision here? It's like, here's Jerusalem. Here's the Jew and Samaria, the center and part. And here's the rest of the world. Now, where are they standing when he does this? On the Mount of Olives. About a half a mile from Jerusalem. When you stand on the mountain, you can see all around. Stand on the Mount of Olives in Israel, probably see the Mediterranean Sea. And that's the rest of the world out that way. So much you see from the top of a mountain. But he doesn't tell them just to see. He wants them to understand they're going to be witnesses. That's the activity of telling others about Jesus Christ. Of telling others of what you believe. Telling others that you're a follower of a Christ. That's a witness. And he says you have to be engaged, you have to be engaged with that vision to reach those who don't know Christ. Engagement's an important part. I remember teaching my daughter how to uh, drive a stick shift. Now, sometimes as dad, you, you do some foolish things and you don't help your kids. And we lived on a nice hill and it was about, it was about like this. And uh, so I took my daughter out, and somebody loaned me this pickup, had the stick shift and everything, and of course we, we drove it up so we're pointing up the hill to teach her how to do the stick and everything, okay? So she's got her foot on the brake. She's got the clutch in, got the car in gear, and I said, now here's what you have to do. You take your foot off the brake, you put on the gas pedal, and release the clutch at the same time. Oh, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? <laughs> We're sitting there on that hill. All of a sudden, she takes her foot off, and of course she panics because the, the pickup starts rolling down the hill. And all of a sudden, she's there, and she pops that clutch, and that car just bounces like this, and we stop immediately. It's like, oh, okay, Trish, okay, Trish, let's try it again, let's try it again. So all of a sudden, we do it again. She starts it up, and puts her foot on the brake, puts the clutch in, releases the brake, and all of a sudden, in her panic again, starts to put the gas out, pops the clutch, jumps all over, and kills again, as she's trying to engage the clutch. So finally, I realized I could teach her a little trick on this, and I said, let's put the emergency brake on. Okay, put the clutch in, put your foot on the gas, and I'll handle the, I'll handle the brake, and uh, give it some gas, and, give it, and say, now let the clutch out, so you can just, You'll feel a catch. You'll feel a catch. And sure enough, you can. If you, you know what I'm talking about. And she could feel a catch. And I said, okay, now slowly step on the gas and release it a little bit more. And then when she heard it revving, I released the brake. And sure enough, we went right up the hill like that. Why? Because she finally engaged the clutch to run the car. And here's what happens for us as believers. 
especially we start planting churches. I'll share from my own experience. Spend all the time in the planning, all we talk about. We're going to reach the world. We're going to reach the community. We're going to reach Carroll Stream. We're going to reach Langdon. We're going to reach Morton. We're going to reach everybody for Christ. And as soon as we have the first service, next week, you know what we're talking about? Well, let's see. Who's going to take care of my kids? What about the nursery? Who's setting up? And everything goes from outside looking to inside looking. And all of a sudden, you realize that we have a vision, but are we engaged in it? Sometimes I feel like we come to church like this. We all gather together. And we give a pep talk, hey, let's do evangelism. And you can just hear our engines revving. Everybody's got our clutch in. You know how you can sit there with the clutch and go, whoom, whoom, whoom. We're all sitting, whoom, whoom. Let's reach the world for Christ, whoom, whoom. And we just come in here and run our engine. We just pump it up as much, as, but we forget to engage, engage that clutch. And all of a sudden we have to start thinking about, you know what? We're going to be that Acts 2 church. We don't just get engaged with a vision of what we want to see happen. We gotta be engaged in actually reaching out to people with the gospel. Oh, Luke's laying down here this nice foundation for us. Listen, we have to be founded on Christ. We have to be empowered by the Spirit. We have to be engaged with his vision, but he gives us a fourth one. Here's what happens. Notice what takes place here. Verse nine. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven as he, as he went, behold, two men stood by them. So they're looking up. All of a sudden, there's two guys standing next to them, okay, in white robes. And they said, uh, men of Galilee, um, why are you standing here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So he's going to come back, but they're all just staring in heaven. What he's told them to be is witnesses, and what are they saying? They're just standing on the mountain looking up. Wow, that's pretty cool. Jesus just laughed. What are we going to do? And called to their attention by these two, two angels who speak to them. And then verse 12, here's what happens. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Sabbath day's journey is about 3,000 feet, a little over a half a mile. So on the top of Mount of Olives, which is east of Jerusalem. They come down the mountain, up and over, and then they come into Jerusalem. When they get there, they entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying, and here we have the whole list of the disciples, there's 11. Peter and John, and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. When they start talking about being devoted to prayer, it's paying attention, they're being devoted to prayer with the whole congregation of people. Find out here, there's about 120 people. There's something about corporate prayer that's important. Somehow, as Luke lays down this foundation for the church, it's not just that they gathered for prayer. It says they were devoting themselves. They devoted themselves to this congregation corporate prayer. One of the unfortunate things in the English language when we read through the New Testament is most of us are not from Texas. If we're from Texas, we'd all know how we should talk. 
We all have this other phrase, not just you, but we talk about y'all, and that's the plural of you. Y'all, and we say, oh, you all. That's more than one you. Well, in our English language, you is both singular and plural. And every time we read in the New Testament the word you, we're so individualistic, we think me. That's just me. He's just talking to me. Interesting, when you go through most of the commands in the New Testament, the yous are plural, which means talking to us. And they become corporate commands, not individual commands. He's telling we all need to do this. When it comes to prayer here, it's saying, you know what? It's great that we all pray alone in our closet. That's good. However, there's something about being devoted, paying attention to, spending time together in corporate prayer. There's somehow, all of a sudden, these disciples, these followers found themselves saying, look, we saw Jesus crucified and raised. He just told us to be witnesses to the world. We find ourselves gathering here waiting for what? The Holy Spirit to come. And they're probably praying for the Holy Spirit. But they're praying for God to work among them, not at home, but all together. Somehow that being devoted together corporately for prayer. And how we practice that. Uh, this past year, I teach at Moody Bible Institute, and this past year I was invited to speak to the Korean fellowship. And the mark of the Korean church is they pray. The Korean church, every morning, and this is here in the States and Korea, every morning they plan one hour of prayer at six, five and six o'clock in the morning before work. And the congregation comes and prays. Now I'm aware that's what they do. Now I'm pretty impressed with that. So I'm speaking to the Korean students, and before, the, the, before I speak, they talk with me and they say, We're, we want to meet with you and have this planning session, talk through how everything's going to happen, Mike, and what's going to take place. I said, well, great, this sounds good. So we get together in our small room. James walks through everything with me, explains everything, and we all get done, and then they say, um, okay, let's go to prayer. So I bow my head. There's about seven of us there. I bow my head, and all of a sudden, all six of them start praying simultaneously in Korean, out loud. And I'm like, they're, what? It's like, what is going on? I'm just caught off guard. They're all praying at the same time. I thought, oh, this is just, just something unique. So we go into the time of worship. We get in there with the Korean students. There's about 50 of them there. They call for a time of prayer. Uh, this is insightful, too. They call for a time of prayer. The first thing they prayed for was North Korea. I was just struck by that. They pray anything for themselves. North Korea. I sort of wonder with some things happening now. Is that the prayer of the Korean church impacting? Uh, just questions you ask. But, but all of a sudden, now there's 50 of us in the room. It's like, okay, now we'll see what happens. The leader up in the front says, let's pray for North Korea. And all 50 simultaneously start praying in Korean. I'm like, what is going on? I couldn't believe it. Now, listen, think about this. When the Korean church says they get together every morning for an hour of prayer, it is everybody in the room praying for one hour simultaneously. Not the way that, at least in the fellowships I'm in, the way we pray. You have a prayer request? Okay, let's write it down. Have another prayer request? Let's write it down. Unspoken request? What in the world is that? But 
we'll pray for you. you know, and we go and we get our whole list of prayer. We spend 20 minutes. We, what we say, we're going to pray for an hour. We take 35, 40 minutes getting our list of prayer requests. And we say, okay, then we take another five minutes. Who's going to pray for this one? Who's going to pray for them? Okay, let's get done. And for the last 10 minutes, we pray for each one of them individually. We all listen. Don't misunderstand. I'm just describing what we do compared to the Korean church of 50 people praying simultaneously for an hour for God to work. I'm not saying to do that. I'm just saying we need to pause and somehow think through then we come to the book of Acts, and it starts off to talk about prayer. It says somehow corporate prayer accomplishes great things. Somehow praying together corporately is different than just praying at home. Somehow that corporate prayer is foundational to the life of the church. And sometimes we pray sort of like little Tommy. Little Tommy went home that, or went to bed that one night, He's praying and his mom is with him. He's saying, Lord, bless mommy and daddy. Be with my sister and my brother. And God, you know I want a bicycle. And then I ask you to be with me at school when I go to school tomorrow. <laughs> Little boy gets done and says, mom says, why did you pray so loud for a bicycle? He says, grandmom's in the other room and she's hard of hearing. <laughs> You know, guys, it's realized there's really power in prayer. I'm being honest with you. I'm not sure how it works. And in 2 Corinthians 1.11, Paul writes to, well, the best thing about the Corinthian church is they were so bad, they were so bad, we have 29 chapters of the Bible written for us. That's how bad they were. And that's good for us. That's bad for them. But of all churches, are the most carnal church you can have. They had the most problems of any church. And Paul writes to this congregation and tells him his health and release from prison came because they helped him through their prayers. It happened. There's something, folks, there's something when we gather together and pray that God honors that in some way. And all of a sudden it becomes a vehicle by which he answers those prayers and things happen. Not because we plan things. Not because we market things well. Not because of all these skill sets we have. It's because we turn things around and become dependent upon God. Along with our gifts and skills, but we're dependent on God. Like, God, you got to do something. We don't know how this is going to happen. Unless you work. And somehow, those 11 men, with those 120 people, find themselves reaching the world for Christ. Because they found themselves depending on the Lord for those things. When Larry Walter was sitting in that chair, those balloons were all ready to go, he finally cut that rope, thinking he was going to lazily go up in the air, but he shot up like out of a cannon. Not a couple hundred feet, he went up 11,000 feet in the air, sitting in a lawn chair, <laughs> going along trying to figure out, now how do I get out of this? I don't think he pulled out that BB gun to think about, I'll pop a couple of these and see if I drop down. He just kept floating. 14 hours, he was up in the air. 
14 hours floating until he finally passes near Los Angeles Airport. And he goes into the flyway of the planes. And all of a sudden, a pilot goes on line. Um, tower? Yes. I, there's a man up here in a lawn chair with a gun in his lap at 11,000 feet. It's like, what? So they send a helicopter to go get him. Well, it turns out, apparently, in Los Angeles, there's the mountains that are on the east side of Los Angeles. And as things start cooling down at night, the winds go not in, they go out. So here he is now being blown out in the Pacific Ocean. They go out there, and all of a sudden, that helicopter's going after him. And as soon as they get close to those, those big balloons, whoo, 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 they keep blowing him away. He keeps going away. They can't get near him. He's farther away. So finally, they go up above him and drop a rope. He grabs onto the rope, and they slowly bring him back, back to ground. He lands on the ground. By now, there's newscasters. Everybody's there, film crews and all. And as he gets down, he lands down. They look at him. They arrested him. <laughs> and uh, somebody on the television says, Larry, what did you do that? Why would you do such a thing? He says, you know, a man just can't sit around. <laughs> you know what, folks? And neither can we. We just can't sit around. If we're going to be an Acts 2 church, if you want to be an Acts 2 church, you need to be an Acts 1 people. Don't think about the other people in the room now. You need to be an Acts 1 person. You need to be founded on Jesus Christ. You know him as your personal Savior. Have you trusted him through the death and resurrection? Do you know him as your personal Savior first? But if you know him, are you founding your life? Are you being in the Word with Jesus Christ? Are you empowered by the Spirit? Do you really find yourself, you're being empowered by the Spirit, so it's not your flesh in operation, but the Spirit of God at work? Do you find you're actually engaged and reaching the lost. Without engagement, do you find yourself at work? That people at work know that you're a believer. That you actually share the gospel if they ask. Do you find your neighbors know that you're a follower of Christ? Your family. Just since, are you engaged in reaching others with the gospel? And finally, do you find yourself devoted? Not just occasionally. You're finding in your heart the sense of devotion to prayer as a congregation. Because if you want to be an Acts 2 church, you need to be an Acts 1 people. If you want to be an Acts 2 church, you need to be an Acts 1 person. If you want to be an Acts 2 church, you need to find all of ourselves becoming these Acts 1 people founded on Christ, empowered by the Spirit, engaged in reaching the laws, and devoted to prayer. Let me close in prayer. Lord, how good it is that you give us the book of Acts to talk about the church and how exciting it is to see what is accomplished when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2 and so many people come to Christ. Lord, we rejoice in that, but we also know as a new church, as a young church, our anticipation, our hope that you continue to work among us, that we can reach our community for Christ too. 
Or the whole idea that we reach our neighbors and our coworkers and our families and our friends, that we're engaged, that we're actually engaged, Lord, in reaching the lost with the gospel. Lord, let's be empowered by your spirit. Let's find the word of God daily, enriching our souls, and let us find ourselves praying, Lord, that we're the Acts 1 people, because we want to be that Acts 2 church. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.